Are you ready to record? I started. Oh, okay, so I'm just going to mute everybody and uh, let's um, let's get going. Okay. Okay, so I've muted everybody. Uh, again, welcome everyone. This is the Shia on the Book of Yechezkel, Ilu Nishmosim Ephraim Shmuel Ben Maria Cohen, and Chaya Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel HaKohen. Um, last week we got up to verse 22 in the first chapter of Yechezkel. Uh, today uh, we'll do chapter verse 22. Uh, see how far we get with verse 22. It's a little bit complicated as all these verses are in the first chapter. Um, I just want to uh, prepare you, not pre really prepare you for a warning, but um, there's going to come a point here where um, when we get to verse uh, 27, which is in six verses time, uh, there's, a, there's a statement from Rashi, um, on verse 27, that the, no one has the right to ponder the verse. So just, a, just bear in mind, that's the opinion of Rashi. It's not the opinion of everybody. And um, so when we get to verse 27, so we'll take into account the opinion of Rashi. Um, but um, we will have a little look at verse 27. It's a very, very... A controversial verse, um, but we're not there yet, but just uh, it's on the horizon now because we're up to verse 22. Okay, last week we discussed the idea of, or the last couple of sessions, we've been discussing the idea of God's will and uh, how it is filtered into this world, how it's diluted into this world, how God's expectations come into this world, transform from the spiritual essence of God into a more physical, palatable, Loshan B'nai Odom type of uh, feeling that comes into this world, influence that comes into this world. And also last week we discussed the fact that we, by the same token, have a limited ability to affect the upper realms, even to affect the highest realms by our own free will actions. Um, now, Yechezkel uh, is going to describe what he sees above the heads of the Chayos. He's described the Chayos, these angels. He's described the Ophanim, which lie below them. Um, uh, he hasn't described the chariot yet, but uh, he's now going to describe the exp expanse above the uh, head of the Chayos. So in verse 22, uh, the verse says, Udumus al Roshe Hachaya Rokia. Now, uh, you notice here, and this is pointed out by Larry last week, that the language of the previous verse and the language of this verse is Hachaya in the singular. Um, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit later on, but uh, just to point out, it, it's, it's worth noticing even at this point that uh, from discussing the language of Chayot in the plural, uh, Yechezkel is now de describing Chaya in the singular. And we'll see why that is shortly. Um, so again, Udumus Aroshea Chaya Rokia. And there was a likeness, a similarity uh, over the heads of the Chayos or the Chaya, uh, this angel or these angels, Rokia, of a Rokia or an expanse. I don't know how it's translated in uh, various books you've got in front of you. And this expanse, it had the color 
uh, or it had the appearance of a severe or a fearful frost. Notu al Rosheham, it extended over their heads, Milamala, above them. So, very straightforward as ever. All these psukim are very, very straightforward, which is why we've only spent, I think, 18 hours discussing the first 21 chapters, uh, 21 verses. So before we go any further, there's a word in this posuk that needs some explanation. It's a word that we haven't come across before. The word is rakia. Um, and Yecheskel describes imagery um, that above the heads of the chayas, there was what appeared to be something that resembled a rakia. So in order to be able to picture this or try and imagine what uh, is trying to um, describe, um, we have to know really what a rakia is, if we can. Um, now, we discussed before in one of the uh, previous shirim, um, the Gemara in Chagigo, that describes the seven heavens, seven different uh, uh, celestial areas, not worlds, celestial areas described in the Gemara and Chagia. Um, one of them was called the Rikia. And um, as the Gemara and Chagia, we'll see in the Gemara and Chagia, they, they don't, the Gemara they really doesn't want you to really investigate any further than just saying the word Rikia. And, um, but we'll see. Uh, we come across this word very early on in the Torah. Um, as I mentioned last week, it's, it forms part of our brachas that we say in the morning, Rokah Oretz Al so which gives the ex- it, 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 an insight to the idea of an expanse, something that is uh, extremely large and is a dividing area. So, if we just take a quick look at the first chapter of Bereshis, um in the first chapter of Bereshis, in verse six, God created something called the Rakia uh, on day two. Uh, the Pesach says, Let there be a rakia in the middle of the water. And its job was to separate between different, um, different pieces of water, different expanses of water. So exactly what is a rakia? Uh, there are many opinions. I'm going to give you a few of them here. Uh, the Malbim and Boratius, uh, quoting the Abarabinel and many others, offers five opinions on exactly what we mean by the word rakia, and then he adds one of his own uh, to make six. And most of these ideas that uh, the Malbim quotes over there revolve around the concept of celestial spheres that surround uh, the known universe. And in astronomy and navigation, a celestial sphere is really an abstract concept. It's an abstract sphere um, that's uh, arbitrarily, arbitrarily large. It, there's no fixed size of a celestial sphere. It can even have an infinite radius, which is, for mathematicians, it's very hard to explain. Um, but these spheres are concentric to the Earth, um, which means that irrespective of their size, they, they share the same center of access in respect to the Earth. So, I mean, I, I don't want to go into the mathematics of it because it's not really relevant. But um, the, most of the explanations here revolve around this idea of celestial spheres, something that is extremely large, that circuit, circles the Earth or circles the galaxy, 
but it's concentric to the earth so that its center is equidistant from the earth whatever side it is so these are the uh, six um, explanations that the Malbim brings uh, number one is the rakia is uh, the uppermost sphere that surrounds the whole universe um, the implication of this explanation is that the rakia is so to speak the container a containing vessel inside which the universe sits and and beyond this container uh, that contains the known universe uh, is water exactly what that means exactly how that works no clue the second explanation is number two the rakia is an invisible physical edifice that is responsible for moving around the celestial bodies in other words a a a, a natural force that keeps the universe in shape keeps everything moving in the correct format keeps the planets revolving and uh, is responsible for various natural laws of particularly of gravity uh, that cause celestial bodies like the planets and the sun to revolve uh, in a specific order in a specific uh, method in a specific way uh, that is constant uh, that has been constant since the moment of creation or has been constant, I won't say since the moment of creation, but has been constant since uh, the end of creation, at the end of the sixth day. Um, the third idea offered by, these are all Jewish sources. The third opinion is that the rakia is a physical substance that exists between the earth and the moon. Now, we know that's not true, um, so we can readily dismiss that. Um, the fifth, the fourth opinion I'll come to in a second. It's the last one I'll explain to you. The fifth opinion is that the rakir is an imp imperceptible um, but very strong physical sphere. Um, this view is completely rejected by most commentators as being too vague and unverifiable. The sixth opinion is the rakir is a solid form, uh, and this is a solid form that resulted in God separating the heavens into its solid components and its non-solid components. In other words, into dry land and into water. The collection of the solid components um, formed part of, or some of the solid components formed something called a rakia, and what remained was only water. Uh, this, this is describing a chemical reaction that took place at the time of creation and as a result of that, the water was split into two areas, the waters that were above the rakia and the waters that were below it. So those are five opinions. All of them uh, do not conform to anything that we understand scientifically today. The only uh, um, definition that uh, has got any basis in science that we understand today is opinion number four, which is the one that uh, the Malvim at, well not adds, but the one the Malvim puts his finger on and says, this is what a rakir is. The rakir is the atmosphere that contains the biosphere. It is therefore physical, but not solid, which is a, a roundabout way of describing, I mean, that's not the a scientific way of describing the atmosphere and the biosphere, but it's certainly halfway there um, in, a, in simplistic terms to describing what the atmosphere and the biosphere are above the earth, uh, something that is physical but not solid. So that is the opinion about, of the Malbim. 
Um, and that's the only uh, opinion really borne out by empirical evidence, um, which, as I said, the atmosphere theory. And again, that's the conclusion of the Malbim. Um, it's been discussed. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilled writing about what a Rakia is. Um, the, the opinion that the Malbim brings here, that we're talking about the atmosphere here, is, is not his. It's not his opinion. It's, it comes, he's quoting Rishonim from the 12th, 13th and 14th centuries. And it seems that that was the prevailing opinion among the Rishonim, that there was an invisible physical uh, barrier, so to speak, above the earth. And uh, that physical barrier above the earth was not visible. Um, uh, it was physical, not visible, but solid. In other words, it's, um, it actually, uh, sorry, but not solid. So it was um, abstract in, in a particular way. So what about the word itself? Rakia, where does the word come from? It's very difficult really to get a grasp on the word. The majority opinion here is Rakia. The word Rakia comes from the word Rokua, which means to be thin or to be flattened out. Um, we, one theory regarding the etymology of the word, um, that it means thinned out, uh, flat, something that's uh, beaten and flattened out, comes from the story of Korach, if you remember the story of Korach, Korach rebelled against the uh, against Moshe, against Aaron, and uh, he launched a rebellion. And they were all invited to bring um, uh, uh, korbanos. They were all invited to bring their you know, fire pans and offer incense to God. And the pasuk says there, "Es machtos ha'ela," the pans with the, this katoros in it. Um, of these sinners, which is Korach's group, for Nafshosom, um, it was something that cost them their lives. For Osu Osom Rukue Pachim Sipui Lamizbeach, they made flattened out plates as an overlay to the altar. Exactly what that means, what did they do with the Mizbeach? Not really sure, but the language there is Rukue Pachim, they, flat, they had flattened out plates. So a lot of opinion is that that's where the word rakia comes from, something that's been flattened out to create a barrier, but a very thin barrier, an invisible barrier um, that goes around the earth. And that fits in very well with the, the Malbim and this idea of the atmosphere, the biosphere, that's certainly there. And it uh, serves as a protection for us because there are certain things that uh, threaten the earth. Uh, small meteorites or even large meteorites, comets, or not comets, but meteorites that get deflected by the atmosphere, even though the atmosphere itself, you could literally put your, your hands through it. It's not solid, but it's physical. Okay, just back to the creation story for a second. Um, the idea here from the Malbim and others is that God took part of the heaven um, on day two, that was at that stage a chaotic mass of water and other substances, other chemicals. He then thinned and flattened it out. Let me just uh, mute everybody here. Those are new people and they're not muted. There we are. Okay, so that on day two, God, so to speak, um, um, took uh, part of the heaven, part of the... Uh, the uh, 
the area above the earth. I don't like to call it heaven. The area above the earth, which at that stage on day two of creation was still a chaotic mass of water and other elements, other substances. He thinned and flattened it out into a state of rokua till it was very, very flat and thin and that the new thinned material contained no water and was so thin and its components so precise that it could best be described as a container for air. In other words, beneath the rakia, beneath the atmosphere, was a breathable environment. Above the atmosphere, it was, there was a non-breathable environment. Meanwhile, the extracted water was, was placed above and below this expanse of air so that there was water below the atmosphere, which is the water that's uh, contained in the earth, and water above it, which, we, which would, we would consider to be the water that existed or does exist on other celestial, celestial bodies, different planets. Um, and again, this expanse can be best described as an atmosphere designed to support organic life uh, that would ensure in the following four days of creation, remember this is on day two, that would ensure, uh, ensure uh, after the following four days of creation that organic life could exist on Earth. And uh, there is support for this idea from the Gomorrah itself, that this rokia, the word rokia implies something that's very thin. The Gomorrah in Chagiga on Tezval on page 15 uh, discusses it um, and describes the various opinions in the Gomorrah how thick or how thin was the rakia? One opinion is it was as thin as a hairbreadth. One opinion was it was uh, the distance between two uh, wooden planks. Some opinions were that uh, it was uh, the distance just of two garments, one on top of the other, and uh, various other opinions. But all the opinions in the Gemara and Chagiga indicate that it's a very, very thin area. It's a very, very thin dividing area. Um, so we see that uh, from the Goran Chagida, whichever opinion is correct, the width of the Rakia was very thin. And um, so those are the prevailing opinions. Uh, and I, as I said, the majority opinion that the our Rakia, our Rakia is the Rakia that we're concerned, not that we're concerned about in Yecheskel, but the Rakia that we're concerned about in terms of creation um, is probably, I'm not saying definitely, because I'm, I'm not that sure, um, is probably the atmosphere and the biosphere that, uh, on the one hand, protect the Earth, and um, on the other hand, are a separation from um, the organic uh, world underneath it and the vacuum of space above it. Now, that, 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 those are the prevailing opinions of the Rishonim. There's one dissenting voice in all of this, uh, the dissenting voice in all of this is the Ramban, uh, Ramush ben Nachman, and uh, he, he disagrees with everybody here. And he writes as follows. Um, he said, these are his words. Uh, he didn't speak English, but uh, you'll take my word for it that my translation is okay. He says, don't believe for a moment that I have anything to write on the subject of the Rakia. The issue of what a Rakia is is one of the deepest secrets of the Torah, and these verses at the beginning of Bereshis are not designed to explain anything. They are short, deliberately obtuse, and delving into the issue of Rokia is forbidden, even to the greatest men of the generation, and how much more so for us.
that is very um, very uh, humble in his his opinion of himself, but he was the greatest man of his own generation. But he says it's forbidden even to think about what the Rakia is, um, and uh, even for the greatest men of the generation. So that's the opinion of the uh, Ramban. Um, there is a, a, an interesting support for the opinion of the Ramban from Rashi. Um, the, there's a Mishnah in Chagiga that says anyone who delves into one of these four issues is better off of never having been created. And uh, the four things that the, the Mishnah says that uh, a person should never delve into is these, what's above the world, what's below the world, what's before the world, what's behind the world. And Rashi explains what are these four things. What is above the world means what is above the Rakia. What is below the world, what is below the Rakia. What is before the world, what is outside the eastern boundaries of the Rakia. What is behind the world, what is outside the western boundaries of the Rakia. So according to Rashi, this Mishnah in Chagiga, which says which most interpret to, to mean um, delving into the actual creative process and what existed before the world was created and what will exist after the world uh, at the time of the Mashiach. The Rashi says that's not what the, this mission is talking about. This mission is focused on the Rakia. And as I said, the Ramban would heartily agree that you're not allowed to discuss it. But uh, virtually all the other Rishonim discuss it. And just to add a bit of Hasidus to the proceedings, the Kuti Moran, who unexpectedly I've been using quite a lot here in Yechezkel. I'm not normally uh, known for quoting Hasidic sources, but uh, the Moran here, um, uh, Rab Nachman of Bratzlav, says as follows, the Rakir is a barrier that separates and divides between the desirer and the desired object. Um, he's talking from a Kabbalistic sense. Um, and he said, this could indicate what we discussed in verse 14. In verse 14, it says, V'hachayas rots over shov. They ran to things and then they ran back. They were repelled. But the chayas were attracted to the upper world, which was God's world, but were repelled as soon as they tried to enter God's realm. The mechanism that repelled them was something like a rakia, a physical or spiritual ba barrier or a combination of the two. So he says a rakia is a, a barrier that separates the desirer from the desired object. Something always prevents you from grabbing onto something that you want. That is what a rakia is. So that's a, a Hasidic approach. I don't know what to make of it really, but uh, I thought I'd uh, uh, mention it because um, the Moran says it. And, um, and uh, you know, I've been quoting him quite a lot. But uh, so back to Yechezkel. So what is Yechezkel describing here when he recounts what he saw above the Chayas? So he's not describing a rakia. He's describing Udemus al-Roshe'achaya There was a lightness over the heads of the Chayas of a rakia. In other words, what he saw above the Chayas was like a rakia. It wasn't a rakia. It was like a rakia. And ke'en ha it had the appearance of, of a severe or frightening frost, notu al-roshehem milmala, that extended over their heads and above. So I'm going to give you two, two entirely different ways of understanding this, 
this verse. Um, one is the Malbim, and one's a, a much deeper approach um, from Chazal. So the Malbim says as follows. What's going on here is, Dumusa Rosha Achai Ad Atta, he writes. Until now, Roba Olam HaMalochim, Uba Olam HaOfani. Up until now, Yechezkel has actually been describing what's going on in the world of the uh, angels, um, the Chayos, uh, and the world of the Ophanim, the Esa Shefer, Shefa, and the, the way that God's will is transported uh, downwards, for HaKesher, Sheyesh Lamalochim, and also the connection, the relationship between the different types of angels. But at or now, Sipo. Now Yechezkel is actually describing exactly how this will, the will of God, is transported from God's realm into the realm of the angels below. Uh, before he, said, he told you that that's what happened. He described that that's what happened, that uh, God's will, God's rot zone, God's... Um, emanation uh, came from the upper realms into the lower realms. Um, but now he's describing, so to speak, as much as he can, as much as Yechezkel under- understand, the mechanism by which this influence, this power, this ruach, this will, this rotzon, this emanation from God, what was the mechanism by which it was transported from God's realm into the lower realm of the angels? Shehu Olam HaKisei, from the, the realm above the Chaios, which is the, the realm of the Kisei, the realm of God's throne, so to speak, which is called the Olam HaYitzira, the world of formations. Ha'omad al-Olam which stood above the world of the Chaios, which is the world of, sorry, the world of the Kisei is the world of Bria, the world of creation. And Ha'omad al-Olam which stood above the, the world occupied by the Chaios, um, which we know to be the Olam HaYetzira, the world of formations, that, um, and he's describing the barrier that the angels themselves couldn't pass through for any length of time, but that was this Rakia, something that looked like a Rakia, was the me- mechanism by which God's will passed through from the upper worlds down into the lower worlds. Because the rakia here that he's describing is a machitza, is a barrier that divides the upper worlds from the lower worlds, like in our world. And um, in other words, Yecheskel is trans- transforming the image he's seeing into his own physical terms. Um, and uh, he says what Yecheskel, the way Yecheskel imagines it in his own imagination is the way any human being would imagine this type of um, mechanism uh, that the barrier, this rakia is similar to the barrier that exists in our physical universe, which we described as the atmosphere and the biosphere. This is the Malbim speaking, and that's his opinion, that the uh, rokia is like an atmosphere or a biosphere. And as he describes, the way it works on our Earth is water vapor rises from the Earth, gets trapped within the clouds, the water vapor condenses, falls as rain or snow or ice, some type of precipitation. But this water vapor 
can't rise beyond the atmosphere itself. It becomes trapped below it. Um, it becomes trapped below the atmosphere and the process of rain, snow or ice begins, which we call the process of precipitation. And in our world, again, transforming what Yechezkel is actually seeing into our physical, the way we would imagine this, this concept in physical terms. Because above the atmosphere, or the rakia, the atmosphere in our physical world, is the empty, empty realm, which we call the vacuum of space. Uh, and uh, nothing organic can survive there. And that's what the Possek means, that when God called to the rakia, he called it shamayim. He called it uh, the heavens, space. He called it an area where human beings, where organic beings can't survive. And the message Yechezkel is receiving here is that that type of physical, um, chemical and physical reaction um, is very similar uh, to the spiritual version of it upstairs in the spiritual worlds. Just like there is a barrier between the atmosphere and the, the vacuum of space, uh, in our physical world, there's a similar barrier uh, between each of the heavenly worlds, which is called a rakia uh, for each different realm uh, above. And this sits, this thing that's like a rakia sits between each of the worlds. And the Derek Shom Yordu Gishme Nadovos for Shefa Rotson Mimal. And says the Malbim, this barrier that in, in, in the physical world ensures that the, so to speak, water vapor doesn't escape into outer space, but is actually collected below the atmosphere, is gathered into the clouds and falls as precipitation. Uh, in the same way that that works in the physical world, that's how Brocha works, or God's will works in the spiritual world. Um, and instead of, instead of water falling, uh, physical water falling, Gishme Nadovas for Shefa Rotzal Mimal, the thing that uh, falls down that comes through the Rakia is not physical rain, it is spiritual rain, which we call Brocha, Gishme Brocha. Um, those, uh, Larry just told me you're learning Gemara in Tainus, so you'll know the difference between Gishme Brocha and Gishme Klola. So this is this is what Yechezkel is witnessing. His his mind, his intellect, his imagination <clears throat> is witnessing something that he understands from the physical world, and he understands now. That there's a similar methodology that exists in the in the spiritual world. And therefore he sees this expanse, this barrier above the heads of the Chayas, Umitsayar, and he's describing it. He describes it as this type of frost, this type of awesome, severe frost. Which is exactly the way he would describe something in the physical world. 
under certain circumstances, when it's very cold, uh, the, the clouds collect uh, water, the water, because of the temperature, um, it doesn't fall as water, it falls as snow. And sometimes it can fall as hail, and it creates a situation where there's ice on the ground. So Yechezkel is interpreting the imagery that he sees in his own physical terms, so that just like in our physical world, water vapor rises and eventually is transformed into various types of precipitation. This transformation of water vapor under extremely cold temperatures can and does sometimes convert the freezing vapor into hardened ice. Consequently, Yechezkel is painting a picture that God's will, so to speak, that comes into this world, that comes down from the world of the, of the throne, from the world of Bria, from the world of creation. When it leaves there, it is extremely spiritual. And in the same way that water or liquid or moisture can be transformed into snow and ice and hail, etc., in the clouds, so God's will, so to speak, can be transformed into something that appears to be very icy indeed. The imagery suggests that the rain that we experience on earth, which we look upon as brocha, that we always want rain, right? We're always praying for rain. Rain is a brocha, but sometimes the, uh, the liquid, the moisture is transformed into ice, which is a sign of the opposite. So what the Malbim is saying is that um, Yechezkel is seeing something that uh, the mechanism uh, similar, which he, he can only interpolate and extrapolate uh, in his own imagination uh, in physical terms. The idea of um, rain coming down or snow coming down or hailstones coming down. Here, what he's seeing above the heads, the heads of the Chayos is God's will. God's ruach, God's emanation, God's brocha, so to speak, coming into the world. But what he's seeing is it's coming into the world as ice. If he saw it as coming in as, as liquid, as rain, he would interpret it as, as a sign of brocha, that God is, so to speak, pleased with the Jewish people. But because it's, he sees it in terms of ice, that's indicative to him of the dark and hard times ahead in exile, and all the troubles that are going to lay ahead. So this is um, an analysis of the Malbim, um, where he's des basically describing uh, a physical phenomenon and uh, translated into spiritual terms, so that the influence, the Ruach, what he's seeing, the God's rotson, God's will, God's brocha, so to speak, that's coming into the world is very cold at the moment. It's a time when the base of Midrash is six years away from being destroyed, and it's dark times. And as a result of dark times, what he sees above the heads of the angels is God's will 
so to speak, coming into the world of the angels, which will eventually end up transformed, diluted, and uh, in the physical terms, arriving in our world as being very cold um, and uh, indicative of the terrible times that lay ahead with the destruction of the base of Middash and the murder of 950,000 Jews uh, and everything else that goes with the destruction of Yerushalayim and the base of Middash. So that's the, the Malbim's take on this verse. I'm going to give you another explanation. Um, uh, let's see if we can get through it. We'll try and get through it. This is uh, based on a medrash. Um, this is a completely different way of understanding this verse, which is good because um, I always like to have two ways of understanding. This is very dark, what the Malbim has said. Um, but here's the second way of understanding. Just... Uh, before I go on to uh, see if there's any questions here. Ah, ba, 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 ba. Questions, questions. Could the first explanation be Einstein's particle horizons? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. Einstein described how the universe is expanding. We're within the particle horizon. Everything on the other side could be Shemayim. And it fits with the first 15 years of creation being six days. I, I thought it's interesting. It's, it's interesting, and, and you know, uh, Prof, uh, Dr. Um, Schroeder. Dr. Schroeder wrote about it, but he, his theories on this have been proven to be incorrect, unfortunately. So I'm very, I'm very skeptical about, I'm always very skeptical about, uh, as a mathematician, certainly, um, my training is in mathematics and mathematical logic, and I'm always very skeptical about two things. Uh, not two things, but comparing two things. The Torah doesn't change, never changes, right? The words of the Torah never change. Science changes all the time. The idea that we need to rationalize current scientific theory to the Torah, I think is ludicrous because as soon as you come up with a theory uh, to equate modern scientific theory to the words of the Torah, uh, 10 years later, that theory is going to go out the window and then you're left with egg on your face because as scientific understanding of the nature of the universe increases, the words of the Torah never change. So trying to rationalize the two, I think, is a fool's errand. Um, and, I, I, you know, we could have a discussion about uh, Einstein's um, ideas about the expanding universe and the Ramban, uh, whose commentary at the beginning of Voracious implies an expanding universe. The first posuk, he says the first posuk in Voracious is the, the only posuk, the only verse in the whole of the Torah that discusses any type of creation, that the words Voracious, Baral, Akim, Esa, Shemaim, Esa, Oretz, that is it, that God created something extreme. This is something you might recognize this from 1965, but this was written by the Ramban 800 years ago. That he says that God created something so tiny it was invisible to the human eye. And the, the hilui, he described it as a Greek word. Um, it's absolutely uh, indiscernible by a human being. That's what God created. Within that was the potential potential for everything in the to become everything in the universe and from day one to day six that particle expanded 
and became the known universe. So, I mean, the idea, and, you know, uh, just compare that with the Big Bang and the expanding universe. So, uh, the, the, the background radiation discovered in 1965 that described the, the Big Bang, so the Ramban already knew about that, or he was discussing that 800 years earlier. But again, the idea of uh, trying to rationalize and um, compare and contrast and try to compromise uh, the really what is what you're doing, compromising the words of the Torah to fit in with the uh, current scientific data. I think that is, um, I think that's very dangerous. And I think it's, uh, I mean, there have been great rabbis that have done it. And the theories have been shown up to be, you know, I'm, the, Rambam, the Rambam writes about impossible, uh, impossible things. Right, so he describes a metal ship that sails across the sky. There you are, there's an example of something that's impossible. So we know it's not impossible, right? So trying to rationalize, trying to rationalize something that is uh, a description from the Torah and trying to make it work with current scientific theory is, uh, is a very dangerous, I think it's a very foolhardy thing to do. Um, just give you, an example, Larry, you'll probably remember this from your youth. I don't remember it because I'm much younger than you, like 30 years younger than you, 40 years younger than you. Um, but you'll probably remember that um, when you were a child and uh, you went to have your feet measured um, for shoes, they uh, did they put your feet in a, an x-ray machine? First go, colonoscopy. What? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, they don't do, they, in case you haven't noticed, they don't do that anymore, right? They don't do that anymore. And they've got very good reason for not, at the time, it was the greatest scientific breakthrough of the century, uh, working out how big your feet are using x-rays, but they don't do that anymore, do they? And there's pretty good reason for not doing it. So... But the dentists are still doing it, and the x-ray... Uh, so x-rays... Yeah, x-rays are very good for certain things. They're not very good for measuring the size of your feet, though. Uh, we, we don't go that far anymore. And, uh, you know, th that's just the nature of science, right? Uh, in 1905, uh, various scientists uh, signed a document saying that uh, physics is over. You know, Einstein's theory of, or, or first attempt uh, to, de uh, to define certain elements uh, and the ideas of space-time a group of physicists wrote, uh, physics is finished. We don't need, that's it. Let's move on to something else. Uh, we've, we've worked it all out. That's the end of physics. Well, you know what? 120 years later, there are more questions now than there ever were then. So again, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical about this. Uh, let me move on. Joe, if the Rakia is above the Chayas, no, I said that he's not saying there's a Rakia above the Chayas. He's saying that something like a Rakia is above the Chayas. Wouldn't be, it be in a different world from our physical? Yes, it would. But he could only rationalize it in terms of what he knows. So he's describing it as he would describe something physical. Although he's describing something spiritual, he sees it. His imagination creates the imagery for him of something spirit, uh, physical so that he can understand what he's looking at. The flattened entity would have an area derived from volume areas. Who's this? Every. The flattened entity would have an area derived from volume, correct? Area is measured as A by B. No, area is not measured A by B in, in three dimensions. Um, 
do if one uses, uh, it's yeah, in 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 in, in three-dimensional space, area is not measured by a by a, a, a times b. If one uses a tetragrammaton and square each letter, u becomes 100, a becomes 25, bob becomes 36, a becomes 25, together 186, which is the gravity of Mockham, correct? Mockham is also, um, the gematria of Mockham is 186. If you take the word ale, Aleph Lamed, which is God's name that describes God's power. So that's Lamed Aleph or Aleph Lamed, which is 31. If you multiply it by six, you get 186, which is the gematria of, of Mockham, which shows, which is supposed to demonstrate that God's power is in all six dimensions, north, south, east, west, up and down, everywhere. Okay. When I was in elementary school, I learned the fact that the atom is the smallest particle of matter. Yes, and uh, we don't know what the smallest particle of matter is. Um, even today, uh, after the age of the quark, we still don't know what the smallest, uh, smallest piece of the jigsaw puzzle is. Uh, Mark May science is for the moment and truth is forever. Okay, let's 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 move on. Okay. So there's another way of understanding this. I'll, I'll start it today. I don't think I'll be able to finish it today. This is extremely intriguing. Um, it's a, an approach of a midrash, as explained to me by my Rabbi Zechatali Roch a long time ago. There's a midrash here that explains that all the angels had an inherent fiery nature. Now we know the Srofim, which we mentioned in Davening. The Srofim, Bachayas HaKodesh. Um, but so we, we have from various sources that the angels themselves, all the angel groups, the Chayos, the Ophanim, and the Srofim, they all had, uh, were fiery in nature. It's uh, derived from Pesukim in Yeshayahu. And uh, various Gomorrahs deal with this. Um, the, all the sets of angels had this uh, spiritual fiery nature, I'm not talking about a physical fiery nature, but what would appear to be to a physical being as something that would, uh, is resembling fire. We know that God is Esh Ochla, God is a, an all-consuming fire. Um, they all have fire emanating from within them. If you want to look in the book of Yeshayo in chapter six, you'll see it. Um, so what Yechezkel could be seeing here uh, is the barrier that separates the world, um, the world that separates the realm of angels and the realm above them. He describes it as having an appearance of ice. Now, obviously, the barrier is not real ice because he's describing something that is a spiritual rather than a physical barrier. Um, just like fire emanating from the angels was not a physical fire, as we understand fire in the physical world. Yet again, Yechezkel sees that whatever the spiritual equivalence of fire is in the upper realms and the spiritual realms emanates from the different castes of angels. And whatever the spiritual equivalence of ice is in the upper realms seems to emanate from the barrier between the realm of the angels and the upper realms. So what you're left with is you've got a group of angels in a particular world, in a particular station, in the world of uh, Yitzira. Above them is the world of Bria, is the world of creation, uh, of formation. And separating them is the spiritual equivalent of 
ice. Now, what should happen? We, we discussed in verse 14 that the angels, what do they try to do? They're forever trying to rise up and get into the realm of God, but we're always repelled. Um, what, is, what is the nature of fire and water? What is their nature in, in terms of each other? In the physical world, what is the nature of fire and water in terms of interaction with each other? They're mutually exclusive. They're mutually exclusive. Couldn't have put it better myself, Mark. Professor Mark May, hit the nail on the head. In our world, in the physical world, they're mutually exclusive. If you've got a load of water and you pour it onto a fire, so the water deprives the fire of oxygen and extinguishes it. Um, if you've got enough um, fire that uh, is, is, is blazing through a forest, it sucks up all the oxygen and destroys everything, particularly the moisture, just destroys it. So you've got two, two elements here, two of the four elements, fire and water, that really in the physical world are absolutely and utterly mutually exclusive. Um, they basically are um, items, elements that um, wipe each other out. So what you're left with here is the angels that have this, so to speak, physical fire about them. And above them, the barrier above them is a barrier of ice, which this fire in this ice in the physical world would guarantee mutual annihilation. And, um, and um, so, yeah. So what Yecheskel sees here is that whatever spiritual equivalence of fire is in the upper realm seems to emanate from the different angels and whatever the spiritual equivalence of ice is in the upper realms in the spiritual realms seems to form the barrier between the realm of the angels and the upper realms which they can't enter into or they can enter into but they get quickly repelled now although the fire emanating from the angels was and is a spiritual fire and the ice forming the barrier between the upper realms um, was a spiritual phenomenon as opposed to a physical phenomenon, physical ice, it's a spiritual ice, not a physical ice. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the contrast between the spiritual fire and ice in the upper realm and the physical fire and ice that we experience in the physical world were identical in that their individual makeup should always be a counterbalance to each other. So that in our world, we know that ice, which is essentially water, can quell a fire by depriving it of oxygen, and a raging fire can eradicate, vaporize any moisture it overpowers. Nevertheless, continues this medrash, what Yechezkel is witnessing is that the fire of the angels had no effect on the status of the ice, and the ice had no ability to extinguish the fire of the angels. So that in the physical, in the spiritual realm, there is, so to speak, a coexistence between the fire of the angels and the ice of the barrier above them, uh, which is the entranceway into God's realm, uh, a phenomenon that does not exist in our physical realm. When you combine fire and water, fire and ice together, they're mutually destructive. The, 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 what Yechezkel is witnessing is fire of the angels, the spiritual fire of the angels, 
and the spiritual ice above their heads that it forms a barrier are not mutually exclusive. They don't guarantee mutual destruction. They seem, and I'll say this again, they seem to coexist. So the, the reality is that the fire of the angels should have melted the ice as he sees it, as Yechezkel is witnessing it. And the ice of the barrier should have been able to extinguish the fire of the angels. Neither of these events occurred. And uh, it seems that they coexisted in harmony. And um, the Medrash now expands. The Medrash says there are four, something that we've discussed before, there are four ministering angels uh, that we discussed when we were first described in the Chayas around the, uh, the Merikova, around the chariot. Um, the four ministering angels have got names. Michael, who is a Malach, Ha'omed al Ha'om, he's the Malach responsible for uh, interacting with the Jewish people. Um, there's Gavriel, there's Raphael, and there's Uriel. Um, the Major says Michal is ice, Gavriel is fire, and they work together. And how do we know this is true, said the Medrash? Says the Medrash, we've got a possum. The possum comes from Shemos, and the, the possum in Shemos, in chapter 9, verse 24, is talking about the plague of Borod, the plague of uh, hailstones. There was hail, and there was flaming fire within the hail. They were very, very heavy, these, these, um, these uh, hailstones. Not with it, only were they very heavy, but the, the hailstorm was very heavy. Nothing had ever been seen like this throughout the land of Egypt. Ever since Egypt became a nation. Now, Rashi, Rashi's comment there is as follows. That there was fire blazing inside the outer shell of uh, ice. Nes pasoch nes, says Rashi. You've got two miracles here. One miracle inside another. The fire and the ice. They were intermingled. And the borod, the, the hail was made up of water. It was uh, solid water. It was uh, ice. The last, uh, and obviously the fire inside was fire. The And because God commanded it, they made a treaty. In other words, they made a deal that uh, God, so to speak, encouraged them to make a deal that uh, they would break all the physical laws, that the fire and the ice would be able to live together in perfect harmony. So similarly, so that's Rashi's take. So this is, this is something that Yecheskel is witnessing here. As we'll see, it's not so straightforward, but um, I'm just giving you the, the basics because when we come to uh, expand on this next week, because I'm not going to get finished with this yet, I'm going to leave you hanging. Um, it seems that uh, in the physical world, normally in the physical world, obviously fire and water are uh, mutually destructive. Um, but it seems in the physical, in the spiritual world, that's not, doesn't seem to be the case. And the proof of the pudding that they can live together is the plague of Borod. The plague of Borod contains is exactly what Yechezkel is describing. 
that you had fire, the angels on fire, and above them was ice. That's exactly the makeup of the borod. That was exactly the makeup of the plague of, um, of hailstones in Egypt. So the Sefer Yitzirah, which is a Kabbalistic book, um, makes the following point, that the word Shomayim itself, Shin Mem Yud Mem, the word Shomayim contains the letter Shin and also the letter Mem, also the letter Mayim, uh, which indicates, uh, says the Sefer Yitzirah, remember it's the Kabbalistic Sefer, um, that in the upper realms, in the spiritual realms, these two opposites coexist side by side. Um, Eish and Mayim, Shomayim, Eish and Mayim, that's what... Uh, one of the messages of the word shamayim is that in the spiritual realm, uh, whereas in the physical realm, these two elements can't live together um, in harmony. Nevertheless, in the spiritual realm, they can. Um, now, the question, which is what I'm going to leave you with, um, regular physical barriers that we experience here on Earth do not normally guarantee mutual destruction. Correct? Regular physical, I'll repeat the question, regular physical barriers that we experience here on Earth do not normally guarantee mutual destruction. Is that true? I'm making a statement here. I'm not asking a question. I'm making a statement. Uh, can fire and ice represent good and evil? We'll come to that. We're not, we're not there yet. Joan, you're ahead of the game. Um, as normal. In physics, it, it's sometimes possible and sometimes not. You have things called semi-permeable membranes, which are responsible for desalinating seawater to make it into pure water by a okay. osmosis. So it, okay, it's, so it's, let, a, it's a one-way directional thing. Okay, so so the reality is, you, your answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, what generally happens in the physical world. Um, Regular physical barriers that we experience here on Earth don't normally guarantee mutual destruction. The, the bars of a jail cell, for example, prevent a prisoner from escaping. But the prisoner can coexist with the bars of his jail cell. Now, if he touches the, the bars of his jail cell, um, it, there's no mutual destruction there. There are plenty of barriers in this world that you can't get through, but it doesn't mean if you touch them or you come into contact with them, you're going to be destroyed. Um, um, just just that uh, the bars of a jail cell prevent the prisoner from escaping. He can't pass beyond the bars that form a barrier to him from escaping to freedom and, and uh, ensure he remains in prison. Um, but the imagery that we see from Yecheskel is that the barrier between the realm of the Chayos, which is the Olam Hayitzira, the world of formation, and the realm above it, which is the Olam Habria, the realm of the throne, the realm of creation, um, contradicted the physical rules of our world in two ways. Firstly, the Chayas of fire were able to pe penetrate the barrier, the Rekia above them, which was made by ice. We learned that in verse 14, because in verse 14 it says, Vahachayos rots over Shov, Kamare Habozok. And we explained that earlier that the, the Chayas were attracted upwards and they broke through. They broke through the barrier, but as soon as they broke through the barrier, they were returned. They were repelled like a magnet, like uh, a north, north, two north, north magnets or two south, south magnets. And but they could break through, and they weren't destroyed by 
the ice, the Kerach above them. Similarly, the Kerach wasn't uh, swallowed up by the, the fact that the angels, fiery angels could break through. That's one problem. The second problem is that the highest of fire were unaffected by the barrier of ice. Right? They returned completely unaffected. And the barrier of ice was unaffected by the fire of the highest. Something in the physical world that just doesn't exist. Um, so uh, this is the question I'm going to leave, leave you with this week. So here is the question. Why is it vital? Why is it crucial that the barrier between the world and the angels and the world of the throne, the world of the angels is a world of fire, and the world of the throne has a barrier to it, which is ice, have to coexist together. Why is it so vital in the upper realms that the rules that we understand in the physical world, whereby fire and ice are mutually exclusive and guarantee mutual destruction, why is it so vital that this imagery that Yecheskel is describing describes something that in the physical world could not take place, but in the spiritual world is absolutely vital, that the fire of the angels and the ice above them have to be able to live in perfect harmony. Why does that have to be so? Now, this, this is going to lead on to a most amazing answer. I'm, I'm really apologize because I, I really would like to have explained it today. Um, this is a, a, one of the most amazing ideas that comes out of the first chapter of, uh, there's two answers to this, by the way. I'll give you both answers next week. But the two answers are truly um, unbelievable. Um, and... Um, Unfortunately, we, you know, we've run out of time and I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get to it this week, but um, uh, I, will I would encourage, obviously I'll do it anyway, I would encourage everybody to um, tune in next week because the answer is, there. the two answers are totally unexpected, totally unexpected, that why it's crucial that what Yecheskel is describing here, something that in the physical world is completely impossible physically impossible that fire and water can live together in harmony and yet in shamayim their spiritual equivalents do so they live or appear as we'll see they appear to live in perfect harmony why is that crucial and why does yeheskel feel the necessity to tell you that so that is the issue that we will we'll deal with um did you say that Michal represents water and Gabriel represents fire? Yes, that's exactly what I said. That's the Medrash. Yeah. So that is what we're going to deal with next week. So until then, um, the answer, as I said, the answer to this question is uh, quite extraordinary. Um, that's not a pitch for next week. Obviously, you'll come anyway. But uh, whoever's got a question, uh, now's the time to ask. Thanks, Harry. No questions. Larry Lowenthal, no questions. Gee whiz, that Detroit's um, eating up your uh, intellect. You, you need to get back to the land of Israel and have your, your brain reinvigorated. Uh, I asked mine before, and I still like the particle horizon, even though you don't. <laughs> okay. Everybody to their own. Efri, you got no caches? <clears throat> this kind of cashier? 
Okay. I already commented. Okay. Okay. Sky okay. Sky. <clears throat> okay, guys. I'll see you all next uh, week. Please, God. <clears throat> Everyone should have a wonderful week. Call to, to everybody. Same time, same place. Mitz Hashem next, uh, next uh, Monday. Call to, to everybody. Thank you very much.